right, we're going to be in Ezekiel chapter 18 this morning. So if you have your Bible and you want to turn with me, we'll be in Ezekiel chapter 18. And we're talking about a subject that I know is going to be everyone's favorite in the world, that wonderful word, repentance. Doesn't that get you excited? What I'm going to suggest to you this morning is that that word should make you excited. When I look through renewal history and God renewing his people and God doing amazing things in our midst and God working powerfully powerfully in the church, I usually see it happen when a church learns how to live in a state of repentance. When we learn that we are broken sinners in need of salvation and that we need to go before the cross daily, take up our cross and follow him and go to God and say, Lord, I don't deserve your grace. I don't deserve your mercy. In fact, usually, and this year I've done a lot of study in church history and just where the church went did well and where the, where the church did not do well. And in fact, I would suggest to you that usually when a church begins to decline or die is the moment that they think that they're doing things right. The moment that a church decides that they know better than God or that they're saved by their works or that they have become good people is usually the moment that you're going to see the church begin to decline. And so we're going to look at repentance this morning in Ezekiel chapter 18. I'm going to read this for you, and I'll tell you, um, I'm going to actually read it and, and teach it as I go, if that's okay with you. We're going to take it verse by verse, and we're going to do 30, almost 32 verses. So I promise you won't know it was that long, but it will be that long. Ezekiel chapter 18, this is Ezekiel the prophet hearing from the Lord, and the message, the heart of this message is the one who sins will die. That may not be what you think it means, the one who sins will die. This is, in fact, about repentance. It's about owning up to our own sin. And before I begin reading this passage of Scripture, I think that we all can agree that one of the most frustrating things in life is dealing with someone who won't own up to their own responsibility. Dealing with someone who would not acknowledge, never acknowledge when they're wrong, that will not own up to their own responsibility. Uh, my wife makes sure that I'm not that person usually. She makes me eat crow. Um, but I also say this, it is also, I would argue, one of the most frustrating things in life to be the person who can't own up to their own responsibility. I'll give you an example. When I was a police officer, I would sit down with people, and towards the end of my time at the sheriff's office, I was interviewing a lot of people. I was doing a lot of criminal investigations. I, I loved, what I loved most in police work was to sit down with someone who I thought had committed a crime and to get them to talk about it. It was like a game to me. It was a challenge. To some degree, it maybe was too much like a game to me where I stopped seeing them as people the way that I should, but I got it. it was like a challenge, like a puzzle for me. And what I often would see happen was if you sat down with someone across the table and they had committed a crime, when they began to talk about it, usually, usually, more often than not, it would sound something like you'd get them to say that they did it, but it would begin with, well, but you know, my life growing up was really hard. My dad wasn't around, or mom wasn't around, or my family situation was really rough, or I went from home to home, or, or this and that. And there were all these reasons, and they begin by saying, that's why I did this. Now, that doesn't mean that it's not a factor in why they committed the crime, but ultimately what would begin to happen was I'd process with them, and at some point it changed to, well, I, I did this because of my present circumstances. Because of the situation, my, my family member is sick, that's why I'm robbing the grocery stores, and they go into present situations, and that would be the excuse for why they committed something, did something that was wrong. I don't tell you this to tell you that they were right or wrong in that moment. I tell you that to tell you that when, I, when a person would get to the point where they would just say, I did it, I was wrong, I shouldn't have done it, it was almost an immediate 
posture change. They would go from defensive and very straight and kind of playing with their hands and fidgety, and the minute it was, you know what, officer, I, I did it, I shouldn't have. It was like this weight that lifted, and their shoulders would rest, and you'd see this relaxation that you could tell was absent for months or years. There's something about owning up to our sins, owning up to our own brokenness that is freeing. And what I want to suggest to you this morning is that it's not only freeing because that's just how it is. It's freeing because it is a necessary component to understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ezekiel chapter 18 says this, the word of the Lord came to me. What do you people mean? This is verse two. What do you people mean by quoting this proverb about the land of Israel? The parents eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on on edge. Now what I want you to know is this was a real parable for the people of Israel. The parents eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. What it meant was that the children would pay the consequences of their parents' actions in the temporary moment. So for example, if my dad growing up had been a drug addict, there's a good chance that I was going to be in danger of becoming a drug addict myself. If I grew up without a parent, that was going to place some type of consequence, some type of effect in my life. Something was going to happen because of my parents. There would be consequences. But let me tell you what the people of Israel began to do with this proverb. They were in a period of suffering. They were in exile. Uh, They were being taken into captivity. And so what they decided was to blame God that it was unfair that they were suffering for their parents' sins. They took it to a whole nother extreme to say that the reason that we are, God, the reason you're mad at us is entirely because of our parents, and we don't think that's fair. We don't think it's fair that we're answering for the sins of former generations. They were upset about this, and so the Lord says, you know what? Just take that proverb away. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, this is verse 3, you will no longer quote this proverb in Israel. For everyone belongs to me. The parent as well as the child, both alike, belong to me. Now, I've told you before that when we read Scripture, secondarily, we should go, what does this say for my context? First and foremost, Scripture is to teach us about who God is. And so in this passage, what I love about the Lord is God could have stopped right there. Verse 4, for everyone belongs to me, the parent as well as the child, both alike, belong to me. God could have responded with, you know what, you don't get to tell me whether I'm fair or not. I made you. I made your child. I made your child's child. I do what I want. You don't get to tell me what is fair. But that's not what he says. He says, you all belong to me. And because you all belong to me, and I decide how to run creation, after all, I created it, the one who sins is the one who will die. So God says, take this proverb away. The one who sins is going to be responsible for their own sin. You're going to have to own up to your sins. You're not dying because of their sins. You're dying because of your sins. And if you know anything about the people of Israel, now they're the chosen people. They're, they're amazing. I love, I love the Old Testament. But if you know anything about the people of Israel, they were hard-headed. And so God couldn't just, that wasn't enough. He had to go into three illustrations to explain to them what he was saying. The first is this. He talks about three different people. A man, his son, and his grandson. The first is the man himself. He says, suppose there's a righteous man who does what is just and right. In the following verses, he gives examples of how he does what is right. And then he ends with this. That man is righteous. So he says, you have a righteous man. That man is righteous. And because he's righteous, he will surely live 
declares the sovereign Lord. Now, you need to know that this is a parable. This is an illustration because we all know, especially in today's world, we know there's no man or woman that is entirely righteous on their own. This man does not exist is what I'm saying. The person who lives perfectly does not exist, but God says if such a person does exist, that person will surely live. But then he goes to his son, verse 10. Suppose he has a violent son who sheds blood or does any of those other things. So then he goes, he says, the son does everything opposite to the father. The father was entirely righteous. The son did the opposite of everything that the father did. He was a violent man. And he says that the son, in his unrighteousness, he will not die for his father's sin. So so this son who's not righteous, he's not going to die because his father sinned. He's going to die because of his sin. But his father will die for his own sin because he practiced extortion, robbed. Uh, excuse me, I skipped, the, I skipped the grandson. So he says, will such a man live? He will not. So the man who's not righteous is not going to live. He's going to die for his own sin. Finally, the third person. Suppose this son has a son. The son sees his father committing all these sins, and though he sees them, he does not do such things. So then he says, listen, the, the son, the grandson, sees the father, sees that he's not righteous. He sees the sins that he commits but chooses not to live like his father. That's when he says that he will not die for his father's sin. He's not going to pay for what his father did in eternity. He will surely live, but his father will die for his own sin, verse 18, because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, and did what was wrong among his people. Now, church, I want to tell you today, I am not naive that talking about sin and repentance is not a feel-good message. I never promise to tell you feel-good messages. But I do believe that by the end of this sermon, you'll understand how your sin and brokenness and repentance leads to the good news of Jesus Christ. The Lord continues in verse 20 with the main thrust of this passage. The one who sins is the one who will die. And then in verse 21, we'll end right after this. But if a wicked person turns away from all the sins they've committed and keeps all my decrees and does what is just and right, that person will surely live. They will not die. So the Lord also says... If the wicked person, the person who's unrighteous, will turn from their wickedness, they're not going to die. If they'll turn from their wickedness, they're not going to die. And then God says, and yet again we get to see the heart of God, verse 23, Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord. Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? So you get to know the heart of God that God says, look, I don't take any pleasure in any person who lives wickedly and has to be condemned. Because I am just, it has to happen. But God says, I am never happy when someone doesn't turn from their wickedness to me. I'm never happy when someone dies and spends eternity in hell. That doesn't make me happy. In fact, I believe the Lord would, would, and, and elsewhere in scripture says, that makes the Lord entirely, entirely brokenhearted. God loves his people, both those that are going astray and those that have found Jesus. God loves his people and finds no pleasure whatsoever in the job that he must play as judge. But he must play it. God is a God of justice, but he finds no pleasure. But then he says this, If a righteous person turns from their righteousness and commits sin and does the same detestable things the wicked person does, will they live? None of the righteous things that person has done will be remembered because of the unfaithfulness they are guilty of and because of the sins they have committed, they will die. In essence, church, the message in Ezekiel chapter 18 is this. You're not paying for anyone else's mistake. You're paying for your own. 
And no matter how many good things you think you've done, if there's wickedness in your heart, you will not live. And it doesn't matter how many bad things you've done, if you'll turn back to the Lord in repentance, you will live. Now the hard part about this, I've got to tell you this morning, is that none of you, or me, was person number one in this story. None of us was the righteous man. Four different people, this week alone, two of them being family members, I've sat down with and talked about Jesus. And four separate times this week alone, I've heard the message, well, I believe in God and I'm a pretty good person. I think I'll be all right. Church, I'm here to tell you this morning because I believe that it's a necessary fact of the gospel of Jesus Christ that you are not a good person. Some of you in here are wonderful. You do wonderful things. You are so full of love. I love you as deeply as I can possibly love you. I love you. You are my family. But I'm here to tell you this morning, none of you, none of you, not a one, not me, not you, no one in here is a good person. Period. You're not a good person. I don't care how many charities you've helped this year. I don't care how much good work you've done. You are not a good person. Any good that exists inside of you came from Jesus Christ. Amen? If you are any shred or degree of good, it came from Jesus. Outside of him, there is nothing good in you. All good things came from God. I know that may be hard to hear, but it's the gospel truth, and it's necessary to understand the good news of Jesus Christ. If you don't start from there, you're not starting with the gospel. And what I'm here to tell you this morning, because I believe that God is using his church, I believe that God wants to bring renewal in his church. When I look throughout church history, it has always began with and proceeded with repentance. It has always been a church that recognized, you know what, Jesus, if I don't have you, there's nothing good about me. If I don't have you, I have nothing. If I don't have you, I may as well die. It's not worth it. That is the gospel message. And unfortunately, I, I want to tell you this morning three things, if you want to jot them down in your notes. We're looking at this morning the problem. The problem is not owning up to our own sin. And you may think in your head right now, that's not me, but I do it. Lord, if, if only, if only these people in America, if only they would figure it out like I figured it out. Tell me it hadn't gone through your mind. Lord, these two options that we have for president, they're both terrible. If only somebody would, would step up and, and want to run for president. If only somebody like me, in the back of my mind, if only somebody like me would stand up and run for president. Look, don't tell me you don't do it. Maybe it's just me. But there's that moment of saying, Lord, you know, it's them, it's them, it's them, but it's not, it's me, it's me, it's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. And I believe that when the church figures that out, the church is going to change. Desperate prayer, the problem, not owning up to our own sin. And the Bible makes clear, this is fully biblical, this is not just Pastor Rudy standing up here telling you that you're not good. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Isaiah 53.6, for all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own ways, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's biblical. The solution is quite simple. It's repentance. And I want to remind you, repentance is not simply me saying, I'm headed this way and it's bad. I'm going to turn away from it. 
Repentance is I'm heading this way and it's bad. I'm turning away from it and to God. If you forget the to God part, it's not going to help you at all. You're just going from one trouble area to the next. The solution is simple. It's repentance. And all throughout scripture, check out John the Baptist. What was his primary message? Repent. Repent. This crazy man standing in the wilderness wearing camel hair and eating locusts, and he had thousands of people following him based on the message of repent and be baptized. Make way for the good news of the Savior who has come. Repent and be baptized. Jesus, one of the first things he says, we talked about it last week, in his public ministry, repent. This is a primary message in the gospel, in scripture. Repentance is not something we can throw out when it comes to God's word. But if that's not enough, I want us to look this morning at the consequences. The first is the most important. Unfortunately, we live in a world today, and look, I have been tempted. I'm 28 years old. I'm, I'm only now starting to lose my hair. Uh, my wife tells me that I look good, and, and I've thought about it. You know what? If I'll just go preach a feel-good message, we could have a huge church. I've told myself that. If we just go out there and, and preach everywhere and get on the television, you know, you can have a big church. The problem is, in order to do that, more often than not, the message has to be, Jesus is a, a good Lord and Savior. He died on the cross. He's a hero. He rose from the grave so that sin and death would be defeated. But don't worry, it's not your sin. Don't worry, you're okay. Jesus is good and you're okay and, and he's someone to follow. You'll do better if you follow him. But church, can I just tell you this morning that if we leave out the beginning of the gospel, which is that we are broken sinners in need of salvation, it's not the gospel. It's not the gospel. And if the church preaches this message of Jesus died on the cross for someone's sin, I'm not real clear on who it was, but I know it wasn't me. That is not saving anyone. I'm here to tell you this morning that you and you and you and you and you and you, every single one of you in here, me, we put Jesus on that cross. If you haven't watched uh, 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 The Passion of the Christ, which is, is, I know it's brutal, but if you haven't watched that and thought to yourself, it's me that put him there, the brutality, the, the terror that is crucifixion. If you haven't watched that and thought, it's my sin that put him on that cross. I promise you, there is nothing more humbling than that, more breaking down than that. To see Jesus Christ and what he went through and think, I put him there. I put him there. But I'm here to tell you this morning, you put him there. I put him there. My sins, your sins, they put him there. And I want to tell you as well that if they took him off that cross and they put him in a tomb and he stayed there, it would be something you can sit here and feel guilty about. But I'm here to tell you this morning, don't sit in your guilt. Don't sit in your brokenness. It's got to happen because you can't understand the gospel without first feeling, knowing that you're broken. But don't sit in it because I want to tell you this morning what happened at the resurrection. But before I do, the second problem is this. The second consequence of not understanding our own sin and leading in repentance is this. If you don't know that you're broken, you will not grow. You will not grow. It's like sitting at a house. There's two houses. on One's on fire and one's not. It's like taking a water hose and spraying it all over the house that's on fire and then going next door and spraying it on the house that isn't on fire. It makes no sense. The person whose house wasn't on fire is going to be going, well, why the heck do I care that you sprayed a water hose all over my house? Likewise, if you're hearing the gospel and you don't know that it's you, you're not going to grow in the gospel because you have no idea why Jesus died. He died great. He's a hero. Tons of people died in history. 
But if you don't know he died for you, you have no reason whatsoever to grow in the faith. It will halt your spiritual growth like nothing else. The gospel message is as contradictory to what culture teaches you as it possibly can possibly be. The gospel message is confusing. It is difficult to someone who has not heard it. The Bible says that the cross is a stumbling block to those who don't understand. Because the message is that a bunch of people whose culture, especially in America, is telling them to be successful, to think their own way, to find their own truth, to self-help, to improve their own life, to put themselves first. In the midst of all these things, the gospel of Jesus Christ says no, 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 and no. You're broken. You can't fix yourself. Your goal is not to build yourself up. Your goal is not to be successful. Your goal is to humble yourself at the foot of the cross and allow Jesus Christ to transform you into who he intends you to be to the glory of God the Father. Amen? That's what you were made for. And so it is totally contrary to what we understand, but if you want to grow in the faith, you've got to start going against the grain. It's just who he is. It's who he is. The starting point for the gospel of Jesus Christ and what carries us through is our own brokenness. You can't understand it if you don't get it. You won't proceed if you don't understand it. And I want to tell you this morning, repentance is not a one-time deal. Because even when the gospel is preached correctly, what you often see, if I did it right now, I had an altar call. I said, look, all you got to do is recognize you're a sinner in need of salvation. Come up here. We'll pray this prayer. I believe I'm a sinner. I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins. I believe that he rose from the grave so I could be free from sin and death forevermore. The problem is too many people get to the altar. They say, God, all right, I'm a sinner right now. I need your salvation. They accept it right then and there, but then they think, ah, I'm good. But the message of Jesus Christ is constant repentance. If today I understand Jesus died for my sins, but tomorrow I don't think I have sin, I don't understand the gospel. Constant repentance. And church, I believe this morning, I know this message, look, it, is, it may be difficult, it may be not what you wanted to hear this morning, but I'm here to tell you, I believe that our worship songs, we have an amazing, look, I, they sounded amazing this morning. I'm so thankful for y'all. I just, it was amazing. But I'm here to tell you, our worship songs, they ain't going to do it. My preaching, not going to do it. Sunday school, not going to do it. I don't care what you do. Out there feeding people, not going to do it. Doesn't matter. None of that is going to bring renewal in the church. Let me tell you what's going to bring renewal in the church, and it begins with people like me. I'll be honest with you. It, be, it begins with the pastors deciding that we've done too much of this and not enough of this. This is where I belong. And if anyone doubts it, this is where I belong. This is where you belong. And if we want change in the church, it's going to start right here on our face, on our knees. And until I figure that out and you figure that out, don't expect God to do anything different. Because it's not God that's failing us. It's us that's failing us. It begins with repentance. So as we look at Ezekiel this morning... We look at a people who wanted to blame everybody else. And it may not be a feel-good message at first, but I want you to know this. That sin, your sin, my sin that put him on the cross, I already said if it ended there, it'd be bad news. You can sit here and be sad about it. I told you this before. I picture it in my mind, the resurrection. I shared this before, but I think it's just so powerful every time I hear it. I picture the devil standing in that tomb 
speaking with the demons on his right and his left and saying, all right, let's put a, the demons say, let's put a stone, a heavy stone. Let's put it in front of the tomb. That'll hold him. And Satan looks at the demons and says, no, I'm a little bit worried. Something's, something's off here. Put some guards in front of him. The demons say, surely with the guards there 24-7 and the stone as heavy as it is, that'll hold him in. No one can steal his body. No one can come and trick us. But Satan, he knew. He said, there's something, something off, something off. I've got an idea. Let me take the sins of the whole world, every brokenness, every misery, every addiction, hang-up burden. Let me place every single one of them, yours, mine, the past, the future, all the sin that has ever existed or ever will exist. Let me place it on that tomb. Surely that's going to hold him. Ten seconds. Nine seconds. The third day arrives. And even you and I, if we were there, we may be sitting sweating. All right, there's only a few seconds left. My sin, is it going to catch me or is it not? Am I going to be doomed for eternity or am I not? Five, four. But what about that thing I did last week? I know how terrible it was. Three, two. But if Jesus knows my past, if that's placed on him, then surely, look, this is the end. One. And boom. In that instance, all of eternity changed. Everything was different. Every sadness, every sickness, every sorrow, every death, it was done. It was defeated. The enemy sat back. The devil knew he had been defeated. And every day since then, he's just tried to pull you along with him with every lie that he could share. But I'm here to tell you this morning, if you'll recognize that you were broken, that sin didn't stay on Jesus. He beat it. He defeated it. And you fight from victory but in order to fight from victory you have to know first that you were losing but through Jesus Christ praise God hallelujah every day from here on out you fight from victory and nobody can take that from you Amen. that is the good news of Jesus Christ and I don't know about you but I, I want to shout it I want everybody to know listen yes you're broken yes it looks bleak yes you look defeated but my Jesus not you my Jesus he saved me and he can save you too that's the gospel of Jesus Christ that is the message that we carry and it's the message we've been charged not asked not requested charged to share with a lost and broken world so I'm going to Close us in prayer as we continue in worship this morning. But I want you to know this morning, look, if you aren't sure, if you don't know that you know that you know that Jesus Christ died for your sin and on the resurrection, he defeated it forevermore, let today be the day. And if you're here this morning and you feel like you need deliverance, like God, the enemy has been selling you lies left and right. He's been making you be stuck in your brokenness, and you can't get out of the rut. I want you to know this morning, we're going to pray for that too. I believe that the name of Jesus carries power. I believe that the Holy Spirit is in this place. I believe that as we pray, we're not praying to make ourselves feel better, but that God can offer you, He does offer you salvation and healing and deliverance, and that you can trust Him. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you. God, we thank you for all that you have done for us. And God, I believe, Lord, this morning, I believe in the power of your Holy Spirit. God, I believe that if there's someone here this morning, their heart is stirring. God, I pray, Lord, not because of any word that I've said, not because of how it was said, but God, because you are who you are, because of your grace and your mercy, that they can find salvation this morning. 
as we pray this together. Lord, I'm a broken sinner. If it weren't for you, there is nothing I can do to fix it. Place my faith this morning in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died on the cross for my sin. And I believe that on the third day he rose from the grave, defeating sin and death forevermore. I place my faith in him as my Lord and my Savior, as my Redeemer. Heavenly Father, I pray that any that prayed that with me this morning, God, that they would reach out, that it would not be an isolated emotional event, but Lord, that they would reach out so they can grow in the faith and be plugged in, Lord, to know you better. God, I pray this morning for any person here who needs healing or for their family or friends that need healing. God, I pray in Jesus' name that you would heal. God, I think back on the wonderful miracles that we have already seen. God, I think of Terry. I think of Ezra. I think of my son. I think of of Lou. I think of so many, Lord, even just here this morning, God, that you have healed miraculously. And God, I just pray in Jesus' name that you would do it again for your people. God, I declare in Jesus' name that we pray, believing, trusting 100%, Lord, placing our faith entirely in you to heal. God, I pray for any this morning who are here, God, that feel like they're in a rut they cannot get out of, who feel like the enemy is convincing them, Lord, that they they are struggling with things that cannot be defeated. God, I pray that you would draw us together as the body of Christ in one accord to pray against the work of the devil in Jesus' name. I declare in Jesus' name that no evil be allowed in this place. In Jesus' name, Lord, we cast out any work of the enemy. God, I pray that you would free your people to follow you and to give you all the praise, all the honor, all the glory, to worship you freely, remove anxiety, remove depression, remove fear in Jesus' name. God, we thank you for this time that you've given us. As we continue in worship, Lord, we pray that we would know your presence is here. God, we know that you are here. It's entirely dependent on whether or not we're ready to acknowledge it and to be in your presence. Humble us, Lord. We repent today together. God, we come to you and say, we as as this church body, Lord, we come to you in repentance. Desperate, desperate for you. Lord, we can't go another minute, another hour, another day without you. We are hopeless, entirely hopeless without you. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.